I'm June Reed. And I'm Kyle Thompson. And you're listening to General Intellectiness. And this time we are reading Internet for the People by Ben Turnoff, which was released uh, this year, 2022. Um, it's a pretty good book. I liked it. Um, it's a broad history of the development and privatization of the internet, all the way from the basic infrastructure up through the application layers. Um, and it's got a little bit to say about what kind of alternatives might be possible, um, and yeah, what we could maybe do about it. Um, yeah, what's your what's your take on this? Yeah, I think um, the I found the history of the early internet to be quite strong and interesting. Uh, some things in there that I hadn't really run or run into before, uh, some analysis I hadn't seen before, then that was really cool. Um, the middle chapters on sort of the development of e-commerce and web 2.0 and Amazon and sort of like the cloud. Um, those parts I um, felt were a little bit disconnected from the uh, sort of positive possibilities uh, that were suggested in the, the first section. Um, and then the conclusion I thought was quite good. I mean, I have some bones to put pick with the book and sort of the overall perspective, but there's a lot of like good stuff in there. And as far as a sort of primer to the history of the internet, this is one of the better ones I've read because I've read quite a few at this point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think I probably agree. The um, I think the in the early parts where he's talking about the the pipes um, and the the development of the infrastructure, um, he has a much clearer bone of contention to pick with. In that, like, there is clearer. It's 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 more clear what people power and control over that infrastructure would mean and would look like. Whereas when it comes to Amazon and Uber and stuff like that, it's a bit less clear because I guess if you succeeded in getting serious proletarian power and ownership over the pipes then a lot of the you know it's it's like hard to imagine an, an uber would even exist you know in that kind of form so it's um it's 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 kind of a little bit harder to connect that but um even uh, even some of that history stuff is, is still quite interesting yeah there's sort of a point he makes about how like we don't want to make like uh the socialist version of Amazon, the socialist version of Uber, the socialist version of XYZ, like we shouldn't limit our imagination to doing the same thing, but with a red flag. Yeah. And so in that case, the application layer would, would probably just look extremely different anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that's all, um, that's all fair. The, um, there's, there's kind of a nice point that's made early here that like, um, he's, he's kind of like, Laying out that like the the internet the internet is a thing that has a body and bodies are historical and therefore political right that like um, even this kind of in the preface is kind of like saying that like the even the undersea cables follow the contours of previous networks like um, telephone cabling which followed the, which in turn followed the contours of like telegraph networks which in turn followed the contours of like colonial con conquest and you know networks of power um and that this is this is all very much historical and material stuff yeah absolutely um yeah i mean i think that's a point we saw in like platform capitalism that was raised and uh 
yeah, this it's it's it remains a a very good point as like a a counterpoint to the rhetoric of um, the internet being immaterial, uh, sort of ideal, uh, non-substantial, de-physicalized, de uh, disembodied, um, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so the, the internet and its history is like very much tied up in the history of recent developments in capitalism. Um, and like early on, he kind of lays it out there that, um, like, you know, we, we have this tech clash now and all this kind of stuff. The internet has huge problems, but like the, the, the core problem is privatization and markets and profit and capital. And so the, 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 the proposal for a solution is deprivatization and decapital, you know, um, which I, I like as a, you know, it's a, it's a nice, clear sort of um, agenda. Yeah, I mean, I think that because the um, the book is extremely U.S.-centric, um, it is, I mean, it has a little bit here and there about the U.K., but that's just kind of like, you know, the, the transatlantic Anglo-left uh, influence. Uh, uh, but it's, it's, overall extremely u.s centric and so uh you kind of get um a list of things that that the profit motive harms that is maybe more extensive than what you would find if you looked at other countries because like there are a lot of for example capitalist countries outside the u.s that have fairly acceptable access and pricing of internet um it definitely depends on the country right like you can be the u.s you could be australia and just have like appalling internet quality and yeah it's it's definitely tied to the profit motive there's no question about it and this the sort of thesis that he develops about um the isps as slumlords um where they're just trying to charge the maximum rent while putting the minimum investment in um is 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 very cogent but it really depends on your regulatory regime and you can have for-profit corporations in like say japan or south korea or the uk that can like provide pretty decent internet access while still pursuing a profit it's when you get to things like that are higher up the stack in terms of say like facebook or google um, where the profit motive becomes like truly deleterious in a very obvious way, um, as opposed to just being like, well, I could live with this, you know, that sort of situation. Like, you know, that in the U.S., you absolutely like the, the, the Internet situation is so, so, so bad. Uh, same with Australia. Uh, it just is like you know, an obvious point of rage and one that like anybody could get behind, like something needs to be done to stop this crap. Uh, uh, but um, it, it's a little bit more nuanced, I think, when you look at other countries where, you know, uh, the state uh, has stepped in to create um, to, to block off some of that like extreme slumlord behavior in terms of or in favor of broader national internet provision at a high quality 
Um, yeah, because because that's that stuff's good for business, and uh, the, but the the voracious vortex of insanity that is the US um, in the nineties. Yeah, it's, it's, it was it was only going to go that way. Um, yeah, it's sort of in the struggle between uh, the tech giants um, and the ISPs. Uh, generally speaking, the ISPs have won out. Um, and the tech giants have been forced in the U.S. to simply build their own infrastructure, like, completely separate <laughs> from the ISPs, yeah. because the ISPs are are so horrible. <laughs> <laughs> I did love that a little bit. Um, yeah, which is its, it's own weird variation on that kind of privatization. It's just like, we're going to build our own sandcastle. Um, fuck you a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um... Shall we crack on with chapter one, uh, People's History of the Internet? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, a People's History of the Internet is, it's broadly the story of like the original development of the internet as a solution to, well, internetworking um, via this like packet switching strategy where, yeah, it's like, okay, if you um, want to send messages between machines where you know the destination and you know the source because you are the source, uh, but you don't necessarily know the route there, you need some sort of technology to route messages back and forth um, dynamically. Um, this would become the, the internet stack, the TCP IP stack and so on. Um, and it takes us through some of the, the history of development here. But the I guess the very high level story is that um, in the US, a lot of public money was poured into the development of this technology through uh, DARPA and um, the National Science Foundation and such to build out an academic, a sort of like in academia, build out this network for scientific collaboration. Um, yeah, it's, it's, you have the um, stage one is the development of ARPANET at DARPA, which is meant to link sort of command and control facilities to battlefields for the Pentagon. And then you have stage two, which is where you get NSFNet appended onto ARPANET, um, which is the universities and science institutions across the country being connected into ARPANET. Mm -hmm. That that whole development is really fascinating, right? That like the um, I mean, it's it's a kind of given like that. Uh, everyone knows it's sort of originates in in military technology, but like. The contrast between the kind of original envisioned use case where it would be like a, a mobile network that would um, remotely link, um, you know, units on the battlefield, you know, like um, would, would be dynamically linked to the mainframes in, in, in the fucking Pentagon and stuff like that. And how that just, it just wasn't really how it ended up getting used. It was more like email was the killer application for the internet. It was a... Um, yeah, it, it took a, maybe a little bit longer for those kinds of applications to be developed. Like, I think maybe it's kind of like around the Gulf War period where you start to see that kind of... Uh, um, logistics and information systems being deployed for the Pentagon, like maybe a little bit after that. Uh, it's, it's, it's definitely uh, decades after uh, the beginnings of the internet in sort of the, the, the seventies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but like one of the, one of the crucial things here is that like um, the thing, the thing the internet protocol solved was um, it was a language problem of and interoperability problem. The military and ARPA uh, really wanted this universal sort of language uh, or universal communications medium 
into which you could just plug anything. Um, you know, plug a jeep into it, plug a fucking rifle into it, plug a, an AI in a mainframe that controls nuclear missiles or whatever, um, and have them all just be able to talk to each other. Um, and that that's the that's the really big thing about the internet is that it's, it is this kind of universal uh, universal lubricant that um, allows information to flow pretty damn freely. Um, yeah, I think at, at some point he calls it like an Esperanto. Uh, you know, TCP/IP is like an Esperanto. It's 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 a universal language that has actually been adopted, as opposed to you know Esperanto. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> Which obviously has it. <laughs> um, is it like the, the like the uh, I don't know, like two two of the most like utopian projects in in the world are like TCP/IP and Unicode, in terms of uni- universal collaboration. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say, yeah, Unicode is, Unicode is sort of a, it's it's not quite the same thing as Esperanto, but like, just that, yeah, that sort of interoperability, I think is very much, like, Unicode is very much like in the, the same line as TCP IP, because TCP IP wasn't, uh, like, we created this homogeneous uh, protocol, and everybody has to just get on board with it it was more like an interoperability protocol that could connect up various national uh internets together mm-hmm. yeah that's really important because like you've you have a lot of hum uh heterogeneous technologies out there especially in the 70s and the 80s right yeah because like the this this book doesn't really cover it but like obviously this all starts with the us and and arpanet but um there were parallel uh, national networking efforts that were being developed in countries like Japan and France and so on. Yeah. Yeah. And like broadly, like because, you know, there were these various islands of computing and like it made a lot of sense to make this kind of universal language that like if you could then later come along and teach your mainframe how to talk TCP IP, then you're good to go. You can plug into the, the big universal thing now. Um, this was way before kind of like a much more homogenous compute computing environment would emerge later. But this was, you know, the days of all kinds of crazy kinds of computers and networks and hardware. <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it, it kind of really like starts to take off. And again, this is more of the funding stuff like that, like the U.S. government is pouring in money through the National Science Foundation to make the, the NSFNet, which, would, as you said, was the more academic kind of turn um, away uh, to to get as many people into it as possible for this like research collaboration um, purpose. Yeah. Um, so that was uh, big, and it it you know it it exposed more excuse me more people to um, to using the internet um, through universities. And then you started to get sort of like um, private operations that were piggybacking off of NSFNet uh, in like sort of regions where these NSFNet um, hubs were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there was this initial um, like kind of like commercial operations were initially forbidden, but like then... You know, as the story goes, like this, this will get sold off basically and privatized um, anyway. But um, there was there was a lot of pressure, I guess, like as as it became more widely available and people got onto it and were like, "Holy shit, this is actually great!" Um, there was like inevitable, like obviously huge commercial pressure to um, 
to do that. And I think as, as the author notes, um, like privatization didn't come, he says like privatization didn't come out of nowhere. It was the plan all along. And so like, it was kind of always on the cards for this to get sold off. Yeah. I think like, um, uh, there were different interests involved, but the, the sort of the legislators and the government leadership uh, who were administering these internet projects uh, definitely envisioned um, privatization to a total degree or to a uh, majority degree at sort of the minimum, right? Like there was there were some sort of outliers who wanted to try to create like a PBS for the internet you know, sort of like on the cable model or whatever of like, you know, you have this little zone of non-commercial public use, public access uh, that exists alongside the majority private um, internet. Uh, but yet, like, that they, they were definitely not arguing against privatization. They just wanted to circumscribe it a little bit. Uh, but they were very much in the minority um, uh, and the other thing to, to note, which I, I thought was quite interesting was that, um, this move towards privatization was not just something that was planned in advance. It was also addressing a real problem of, uh, bottlenecking in the, in the networks that like basically the funding that the NSF was getting to run NSFNet was nowhere near enough to meet the demand of more and more people trying to get online. Um, so like there had to be some kind of alternative arrangement arrived at, like just staying the course was absolutely not an option. Um, and the one that was like extremely heavily, uh, favored uh was privatization um and you know getting private capital to come in with a lot of government subsidies to uh build out a more uh public uh internet than what had been possible under nsfnet yeah and like there's kind of a remarkable bit here that like i i kind of knew in some way but it it was when it was laid out with this kind of clarity it kind of all clicked into place for me that like um even with nsfnet like you you might think like oh my god the the government spent all this money on cables and computers and stuff like that and then just gave the cables and computers to private companies wow that's fucked up but that's not actually really how it played out like nsfnet was riddled with private contractors anyway like the NSF was not running the network. It was it contracted out fucking everything from the beginning. So the actual infrastructure was always in private hands, really, in terms of its operational stuff. And so there's a very short hop. It was just that it it couldn't operate as the internet without uh, coordination resources that were held by the state. Yeah. That's the crucial thing the state was adding. Like it, 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 like they had the pieces of the internet, but they did not have an internet in their ownership. But once, once it was all established and was very clearly a thing that was going to be big and needed to scale up, like it, it's a very short skip then from, 
you know, like a government-funded uh, internet that is privately operated, basically, to after being like a largely government-funded internet via huge subsidies that's privately operated. Like it's it's not that much of a change actually when you think about it. It was it was a formal kind of opening up and a kind of unleashing of the productive forces or whatever. The private operators who were running this infrastructure were like very well positioned to become the oligopolists after this transition was over. Um, and almost no one else could buy into that uh, market. So it was like very much set up to be an oligopoly involving the um, pre-existing telecoms, like the Bell, like the Baby Bells and, uh, you know, um, whatever other uh, telecom providers existed that were of sufficient size. Um, yeah, that was, that was like, it was very much a foregone conclusion once it privatized that it would be an oligopoly. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, there's a little bit here about like the kind of, um, there was some pressure, as you said, for the like, uh, public option, like kind of equivalence to, uh, public broadcasting, you know, there'd be a little bit like mandated to be. Uh, siphoned off for for public use and so on and yeah like maybe libraries get free access and maybe there's like some servers that are like you know public forums that kind of thing yeah um kind of the internet equivalent of taking the bus i guess um there's there's a little bit here actually it's quite interesting about like al gore and his kind of change in stance over the years from like initially advocating for those kind of things and like public private partnerships and then ultimately when he's in the white house it's 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 just all about privatization because it, it's the 90s baby <laughs> it's, it's what what's in the air you know i mean it feels very typical of the clinton administration in general like that like you know before clinton actually gets into power these like there's like sort of these like little remnants of social democracy in his thinking or or maybe even just corporatism but like once he's in power it's just like nah like let's just like slash and burn as much money for capital as possible like just just yeah let's go like a whole hog um yeah so yeah there was very little oxygen in the room for those kinds of projects uh, for that kind of advocacy um, ultimately, it, it, and it, it ended up being like extremely privatized. And a lot, a lot of the stuff was just handed over with basically no strings attached. It was totally unregulated. Um, like a really extreme example of this stuff. Well, what ends up happening is that you get this very fuddy, I think this is in chapter two. Yeah. You get this very fuddy uh, distinction in 1996 between, quote, providers of telecommunication services versus the new thing they made, which are, quote, information services. So the former ones are subject to, like, common carrier regulations. So basically there are, like, there's certain things that they have to keep open uh, for other uh, businesses to use, right? So you get, like, these little tiny dial-up ISPs that form all over the country. And I know we had them in Canada as well, um, where it was like, oh yeah, you could like sign up with a 
a dial-up ISP that could like use the pipes from the big ISPs um, and give you a little bit of a better deal, that kind of thing, right? This was uh, possible because dial-up ran over the phone lines and therefore was classified as a, quote, telecommunications service. But uh, they managed to classify like cable internet as an information service, and there, which therefore had no common carrier provisions. Um, and then they even managed to get uh, high speed, like broadband uh, internet on phone lines classified as an information service. Um, and there was a little bit of a reversal of this under Obama, uh, but then that was reversed once again under Trump uh, to just like full on information services, no common carrier. And the reason why the reason why you have it 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 sort of get reversed under Obama is not because Obama was a you know social democrat or anything like that. It's because Obama was in the pocket of Google and Facebook. Um, and so like this thing, which was initially was sort of like about public access and entry into the market for like small ISPs, uh, really became a battle over like how much rent would the ISPs be able to collect from, uh, massive tech firms. Uh, Yeah. Do you remember those heady days of like that, 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 yeah, exactly the Obama era and like net neutrality and this kind of shit, you know, and it was, you know, G Google and Facebook or whatever are champions of net neutrality against those evil ISPs and that shit like this. And it's like, this gives us, um, this book gives us a lovely kind of historical and like material basis for kind of understanding that this is all just a fucking story of privatization that, that goes up from the ISPs to the Googles and Facebooks, right? Like that, that there was always a very disingenuous kind of marketing fucking ploy on their part. The, like the well because you have like that moment right of the internet in the early aughts where things are sort of like maximally tilted in favor of the big tech firms like you know they have a pretty good deal for internet access there's um like you know they're able to like found the stuff like youtube that is just like pirating like uh ip rampantly like you know piracy is everywhere uh the the isps just have to deal with it and like google books is just like hoovering up like literally every book in existence and putting it on the internet for free um and and then you have like a a, a reaction from a lot of like older telecom and media firms right like you have um all of the all of the uh internet file sharing sites being shut down um the reaction against uh or sort of like the retrenchment of of isps as like successful rontiers basically all kinds of like older rontiers fighting back and getting more power um and then in the Obama period, it's kind of like Obama's in favor of the uh, tech firms. Uh, but at this point, 
they're not like the ISPs aren't really as much on the back foot as they were earlier. Um, the telecoms aren't these older corporations. And so, you know, they get stuff like, um, uh, with Trump, like getting around net neutrality and having like being able to meter access to different things and like providing preferential speeds for, you know, like Facebook. Yeah, you get fast lane access with your phone plan to like these monopolistic corporations' websites, which obviously favors them over anybody who might be new to the market. Um, but, you know, the, the real sort of like battle between them and the big ISPs is is over like, yeah, how much like how good is downstream access going to be for average users so that like YouTube and Facebook and Netflix or whatever could provide brought like provide like 4K video streaming to the consumer Um and how much rent are the ISPs going to get out of the big tech firms? Um, and like, yeah, and that, that, that's the, the, the kind of the, the counter strategy then for the, the tech firms is to like build these shortcuts into each other's networks and like content delivery networks like CDNs are a big part of that, like um, pushing pushing data closer to the edge, closer to the actual user. And, um, and even like the the Netflix kind of strategy of like, pushing the actual video content files closer to the edge, like closer to where it's actually streamed from and like bypassing other parts of the network. There's a sort of weird turf war that goes on over these routes and these, the, the, the traversal of the backbone. Yeah. yeah. You even have like, you even have like Google fiber, like Google trying to do an end run around the ISPs by just doing its own fiber network. And then that really not succeeding. Like they're just, they're just too entrenched. They have too much lobbying power, um, and 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 they can't really make it happen. And then you get like you even get just like stuff like Microsoft just laying its own subsea cables and shit like that. You know, just like we're going to have our own backbone. You know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just to get around these things, and that that's its own level of the privatization. It's 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 not even that like the the infrastructure has become privatized, but then there's just this other infrastructure that gets built in straight up as privately owned. Yeah, purely like privately financed. This is a Netflix cable. Yeah, yeah. exactly. This this is the subsea cable that will deliver your Windows updates. You know, it's very sing single purpose stuff. And it's happening at the same time that like the tech the big tech firms are like buying up all their potential competitors. So it's like simultaneously they have an infrastructural advantage and then they're also uh, making sure that they don't have any competition in the market. Uh, and it's really just a question of how much rent goes to whom rather than a question of uh, market competition uh, happening. Because in the U.S. you have like the extreme case of regulatory capture where the ISPs have like non-competes with each other. Like it's it's just like, oh, this region of the US is like my private fiefdom and you don't provide any internet there and I won't provide any internet in your backyard. So then everybody is just stuck getting the worst possible internet from the one provider in their area uh, and there's no alternative at all. Yeah, it's uh, it's mob, literally just mob behavior. <laughs> we, we stick to our own turf. Um, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, it's very much like, um, 
the Godfather, all the mafia dons meeting with each other to split up New York, but like, except there's no there's no mob war, right? It's just they just they just keep things very very under wraps, very like very uh, uh, peaceful. Just just keep uh, keep hoovering up that cash uh, from from consumers and and governments. Yeah. And and speaking of that, that we get this lovely section on the internet slumlords where um you know it kind of goes in this thing of like well the the initial kind of smokescreen justification for this privatization is that like well in you know in private hands uh, these companies will build a better internet which of course is horseshit like it's it's just plunder and <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah I know it's it's uh I I'm sure their lobbyists were very convincing about those arguments. <laughs> Yeah. Um. I, <laughs> I don't know. Like, I mean, look, it happened with railroads in the UK, right? Like it makes it makes as little sense in that case as it does for Internet <laughs> yeah, in the US. Right, totally. It's just absolute nonsense. Um, yeah. And like any listeners in the US will be very familiar with this from firsthand experience. But like, you know, it's it, the internet and the access in the US is shockingly expensive and shockingly bad. Um, and it's it's just an act of plunder. Like the whatever revenues go in are just extracted as profit. They're not reinvested into actually improving the service or anything like that. It's just pure uh, slumlord extraction. Yeah. Yeah. And like, um, as uh, is mentioned in the book here, like to the extent there is any competition in the US, uh, they are really just competing for um, the highest income areas. Uh, like they, you know, they're, they're competing to provide fiber to the richest people. Um, and, you know, they, they make like a lower rate of profit in providing that, but they still uh, make quite a bit of money because these people are so rich, right? Uh, whereas in the rest of the U.S., if you're not in one of those rich areas, then you, um, you're going to get the slumlord treatment where it is the worst possible uh, service at the lowest possible cost to the um, provider and the highest possible cost to you, the consumer. Um, yeah. And the, like, really the only thing you could hope for in terms of internet improving is some kind of public plan happens to come together at the state or municipal level, or your area gets gentrified. But in that case, you're just going to get priced out anyway. So, yeah. It's uh, hard to win. And it means that for a lot of, like, for huge numbers of people, it's like internet access is extremely spotty. And often it's like the only route to the internet is through their smartphones, which is its own whole barrel of problems. Yeah, like the smartphone access in the US is like better than in Canada, where it's like truly horrible uh, because we have like tons of regulatory capture in Canada as well um, for for like what started out, I guess, as like nationalistic reasons. But I think at this point, it's just like there's a cartel of Canadian telecoms and they're the sole reason the regulator exists is to protect their market from U.S. telecoms. Um, but uh, but yeah, even though it's better in the U.S., it doesn't mean it's like sufficient 
to make up for how bad the the wired internet is uh, at home. Yeah. And, like, I, I really like this next section on the possibility of democracy, where it's kind of, like, tied in to, um, to the political angle that, like... Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the claim here is that, like, market dependence makes freedom's material foundations precarious, right? That, like... Yeah, they, they talk about, like, Dewey's sort of arguments about positive freedom, uh, where, like, you need actual material resources in order to be free. And internet in, you know, has been for decades one of those resources. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, like, it's it's it's... When you have people that are, like, you know, parked outside a Starbucks, um trying to connect to the Wi-Fi, trying to, like, fill out a job application or fill out social security application stuff, like, that, that that's that's a material undermining of the foundations of, uh, of democracy and so on. Yeah. It's it's a good section, you know? Yes. Yeah. Well, and, and, and you know, as uh, Turnoff mentions, like, in the lockdown period, um, this was especially bad for people who had really bad home internet access, uh, and they were, like either siphoning off of some kind of hotspot in, like, a parking lot, or they were having to use their phones. But, you know, as as he points out, like, a phone is not really an adequate substitute for everything a PC does. God, no. Yeah, certainly. Especially not for learning and, and shit like that, yeah. And I, I believe it's still the case that, like, in the U.S., uh, like, depending on your provider, like, phone tethering can be restricted to a laptop or whatever. Um, so that's like a massive problem if you want to look at uh, mobile as a substitute for uh, landlines. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and the section in the, the chapter closes out on this this kind of nice stuff about like capital as as inhuman power that like is is force like it, it's the, the imperative to accumulate that um, rips up all good things in the world. Um, it's good stuff, you know. Um, um, yeah, like there, there's sort of the argument that um, like even for people who are working for these telecoms um, for these ISPs. Uh, they're not really in charge. Um, he writes, uh, different actors can perform a role sort of like as capitalists differently, but the script remains more or less the same. Accumulation must continue, which means that profit must always be the primary consideration. So it's like, if you de- deviate from the script, then the shareholders are going to revolt. Like if you're working for a public corporation and, you're out, right? Um, and, and and it makes this point that, like, the people can't rule with capitalism because, in a sense, nobody can, um, which is really the same problem we see in, like, the energy sector, right, where everybody just is, like, passing the buck over the climate crisis where they're like, well, it's not my problem. I'm just responding to my shareholders. Blah 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 blah. Um, yeah. The the kind of abdication of agency to this headless uh, accumulation imperative is uh, is real bad. <laughs> it's real bad. Because like I imagine there's even like a fair number of people who like work for Verizon or whatever who have to deal with the shit internet <laughs> in America, <laughs> and there's nothing they can do about it. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Chapter three, I thought was quite interesting. Uh, the People's Pipes, uh, which starts out with the um, historical example of 1935 in Tennessee, uh, with like um, communities not being able to basically get electricity supply and just forming their own uh, electricity supplier. Um, and then that, that um, project expanding into the Tennessee Valley Authority, which electrified the region uh, from from the bottom up with, with some financing from above. Yeah, like you have, um, he writes, uh, private monopolies dominated the electricity market. This quote-unquote power trust was notorious for refusing to serve communities it didn't consider profitable and for price gouging the ones it did. So this is like really where the idea of the power company in Kentucky Route Zero comes from, is is this history of, of the power trusts. Um, uh, and yeah, what FDR... Uh, did with the TVA and so on was like basically give seed money to power infrastructure co-ops so that they could kind of using their local know-how and the funds they got from the government uh, outmaneuver the big power providers like uh, you know all of Edison's companies and stuff that like had existed from the early times of electrification yeah and this was a way of disciplining big capital uh by going around them yeah um which is obviously like quote-unquote like anti-competitive behavior um in the sense that like the state is funding uh private firms uh preferentially over the um incumbents but uh the interesting thing here i think is that a lot of these co-ops uh, still exist. Um, they they haven't actually like died out. Like the small instances of uh, kind of like indie or community um, internet uh, operations that existed uh, in the early internet period. Yeah, and the, the example here that bridges us from the electrification into internetization uh, is quite interesting because like the. Uh, electric power board um in chattanooga like um managed to roll out uh broadband like fiber optic networks because it it like made a smart grid like on top of its electric grid so it like smartified the electric grid but then they had to like lay cables to connect all the nodes to that anyway so it's like oh shit we can just do broadband access and so there was a very natural piggybacking off of the electric infrastructure to provide the internet infrastructure um yeah clever yeah, it's it's pretty cool to see. Um, you know, there are these like small pockets of decent internet provision in America. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the weird bit, right? Because I mean, there's um, there's there's a good couple of examples here, and it's just kind of reiter reiterating that uh, these kinds of local co-ops are pretty good. Um, but like in some cases, you get like the internet in rural North Dakota is substantially better than the internet you get in Silicon Valley because like it's a it's a small operation that's like mostly motivated to improve its own service, like and reinvest rather than extract profits and so on. Um, yeah, because they're a co-op and they have like a separate legal charter and um, and like the um, the 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 fundamental thing is that like building out fiber is expensive, but it's what it costs is so far below the rents, the rents that um, these huge ISPs are charging 
that it's fairly easy for a small organization in a rural area to provide a better alternative um, because it's like the the prices and the the access do not reflect the investment costs uh, that the ISPs face. They just aren't investing because they're they're slumlords. They're trying to get as much out of as they can out of uh, as little as possible. Absolutely, yeah. And um, we then get a really nice section on the kind of. Um uh, the, the, the kind of democratic control and people power that you can get in some of these cases where um, the cooperatives are like owned, operated and run by the people that they serve and stuff. And it's, it's some really good stuff here, like um, examples from Detroit, um, where like the community is really involved in the maintenance and construction of the infrastructure. And like they have a, in addition to internet access, they have like a, an intranet and all kinds of resource sharing going on. Um, it's, it's good shit, you know, it's really good. Yeah, it kind of reminded me, like, back in the day, like, when I was at University of British Columbia and we had, like, the Usenet, like, the intranet for the university, uh, everything was on T1, and uh, uh, and it was just, like, um, a paradise of file sharing and piracy, uh, <laughs> but also, like, kind of a little bit of a community thing. Like, you kind of felt like, oh, we're on the internet. Like, it's like, you know, our, our separate little community here. Um, it's a cool secret club, you know, that you get to be get to be part of. It's the same thing you get to these days with Discord servers. You know, it's a cool secret club that only you're in, you know. and Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is a pale facsimile of that feeling from the kind of those 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 other sorts of intranets, yeah. Yeah, because I mean, ultimately, it's like you're still within the grammar of what Discord lets you do. Yeah, you're not going to deploy another application to it or something or, you know, set up a cool file share or whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the big point of this kind of section is that, like, when people are active participants, it's all very different from their usual way of experiencing the internet, which is privately. And, you know, we, we all experience the internet privately and as atomized, just individual users. But, like, these folks in Detroit, you know, who are, like, organizing amongst the community and, like, building out infrastructure and maintaining it themselves, are experiencing this in a very different way. Yeah, it seems like they get some kind of, like, cadre training, like, they get, like, political education in addition to technical education, because it's seen as, like, a, um, a, a political struggle to, um, enrich and protect the community as much as it is a, uh, matter of, um, uh, technical upgrades, uh, within the city, or just, like, you know, getting around all the limitations the ISP place on people. Yeah. There's a thought for you, like Linux Red Guards or whatever, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's pretty intense. Do you think they have, like, berets and shit like that they wear when they're going around? Uh, probably not. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't sound like they're, like, trots or Militants, something. No. Like, the, 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 the sources that they were referring to are a little bit more pink mm -hmm. than that. <laughs> <laughs> just like full on like panthers or like <laughs> trot sect shit. Uh, so yeah, I, I think it's like you know, there's political education, but I don't think it's quite in that in that vein, um, or at least doesn't sound like it. No, it doesn't. But it's an amusing thought. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Oh no. I mean, I'm sure if, like, Maoism hadn't died in a, in China, they would have had that, right? Like, 
Red Guard cadres going around installing internet in people's houses. Exactly, right? Like in all the... Yeah, if the, the Stalmanites had, had like, uh, fused with the, with the Maoists and they would, like, uh, install Gentoo at fucking gunpoint or whatever. Um, anyway. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Downloading a pre-compiled kernel is counter-revolutionary. <laughs> yeah, and, like, the, um, you know... Um, uh, fucking proprietary Wi-Fi drivers and shit like that are, are um, counter-revolutionary. <laughs> you can fill in the rest, folks. You know, it's it's a joke that writes itself, basically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, all this serves as really good examples, right, that um, for real alternatives, right, that like, um, and it's, it's not an accident that like the, um, the ISPs and the tech companies fight back against this stuff really hard and try to like outlaw pro- uh, municipal internet provision and all that kind of stuff. Oh yeah, the thing that actually I was thinking when I read about those those cadres and stuff in Detroit was that it was it was a little bit more like syndicalism was kind of my vibe. Like it was like okay, this is like an internet utility that is also a political entity and a governance body, right? So it's sort of like yeah, it's sort of like anarcho syndicalist is what it feels like to me. Um, where you just have this like highly uh, unusual circumstance in Detroit where you have like a body of workers in a particular uh, craft that also are motivated to do political activism and provide uh, um services on a non-profit basis just because it's kind of like a space that has been abandoned by uh the state and by capital to some degree um and 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 that like sort of has created a little bit of an opening for something that actually looks like anarcho-syndicalism a little bit instead of just like larping yeah anarcho-syndicalism <laughs> right <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that all that all tracks. Um, yeah. Um, so the the chapter then moves on to like um, I guess like strategies for defending this kind of stuff and for extending it. Um, and I guess it kind of boils down to like in, ensuring that I, uh, other actors can't just outlaw municipal or like cooperative provision of internet. And then the extension is like trying to call on um, getting this stuff to be funded like to get grants and um, and so on. And it, it kind of ties in with some of the stuff we saw a long time ago in one of the very earliest episodes of the show with like, um, what's it called, like anchor institutions and stuff like that. So that like the, the state could um, basically coerce, let's say, universities to purchase their internet services from cooperatives and so on. You know, that like there could be um, a way of mandating the um, the funding for these kinds of things. Yeah, just generally sort of similar to that Corbinite uh, white paper uh, on, like, rural, like, extra London investment by the, the government um, that we, we read, like, quite early in the uh, in the show's run of just, like, how to address this problem of the UK's economy being so massively lopsided towards London um, and, and using those anchor institutions to to help do that. Um, yeah. Like this, this idea of so-called uh, community wealth building, right. Um, 
Uh, yeah, it says uh, these relationships wouldn't have to be limited to community networks. In fact, they could buttress an entire ecosystem of new economic organizations. Um, so, yeah, that's that seems to be the sort of area that that Turnoff is imagining. Um, I think it's like I can like see the value of that. Um, what I wouldn't like what I would not want to see is that you get these like public organizations that are created sort of like the uh the workshops like the uh the workshops that that turn off mentions being created in um london when uh the trots were in power there uh like in the in i guess that was during thatcher's uh time in power right it's like sort of early thatcher period before she shut them down um, yeah, but like basically, you know, these these workshops like they had in the commune or like they had in um, in in that period in London uh, where it's like, yeah, this is super cool. But then as soon as like the state support runs out, they just die instantly. Like they, they have no capacity to exist outside of state provision. Um, that's like my big concern there. That's the big problem, right? Like that they're they're non viable, right? Like that like that's in the in a very Berean sense, right? That like um they're they're not capable of standing on their own. Like and it, it's part of the one of the problems I kinda have with some of the kind of strategy or whatever that's laid out here is that like it's very dependent on the favor of the state and like the, the winds of favor being happening to blow in your direction for the moment. Um I I don't but and and then yeah, that's that's kind of the thing. Is like some of the examples that are used are examples of like very non-durable forms of of um, of power. That like all it takes is a shift in the direction of the wind, and the whole thing blows over. And it's yeah, I think the only one that's really like stuck around are these uh, these power co-ops that uh, he mentions. Like that's the that's been the only sort of like durable one that I think is in the book. Um, uh, over like a long period of time, so, and and I guess like I mean, it, it it's sort of like slightly vexing that like, uh, like even even at its best, right? Like say if you had a totally um, uh, nationalized or whatever socialized kind of internet infrastructure, but like that that used to be the case, then it all got sold off by the state anyway, right? Like so, it's it's very kind of like you're back to kind of square one where like it just it's all down to whoever happens to be pulling the strings. And the thing is that if it's not the proletariat that's pulling the strings, then somebody else is, and guess who it is? It's capital, you know? And if capital's pulling the strings, then there's really very little reason to believe that these kinds of reforms would be durable. They might be very temporary concessions, and would have to be concessions in response to seriously vigorous, like, civil unrest and, you know, revolutionary threat to the state, basically. But if you're in a position where you're threatening the state like that anyway, then getting internet co-ops is why not just overthrow the fucking state you know i i kind of don't know what the strategy would be here really yeah there's like a quote that he uh uses in chapter four um from stuart hall uh who is a uh a british uh social democrat um and marxist um drawing on the state to make the internet's pipes more democratic requires a different kind of state one that is rooted in, constantly draws energy from, and is pushed actively by popular forces, uh, in the words of Stuart Hall. Only such a state can help uproot the regime installed by privatization and put something better in its place. So it's like, like, eh, like, I mean, I don't, 
Like, I don't want a state that is constantly drawing energy from popular forces, you know? It's like, <laughs> I want a state that, like, does whatever we can in terms of, like, pushing a uh, communist and proletarian class agenda against the capitalists and then quickly like as quickly as possible weathers and like withers away into non-existence right like it is like we don't want to think about like the strategy here in terms of being the perpetuation of the state it needs to be like okay but how does it like die off like what is the expiration date on this measure that you are bringing in um, because otherwise, it's exactly like, you know, privatization in the USSR, in Mexico, in the UK, in the US. Like, if these big assets, like you said, are just publicly held by the state, they can very easily be handed over at the top level uh, because um, they're usually interdependent on each other. And like that interdependence, that that power of coordination um, is very easily controlled from the top. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And like, I mean, historically, like the, the, the state that draws energy from fucking popular forces is that that's that's what cons consigned socialism to the fucking dustbin of history for so long you know <laughs> like have we have we have we learned nothing from the second and third internationals you know what i mean like it's just um and then yeah it's like uh, we, we were we were talking about this in the green room but like you, the, what you just said kind of brought it back up for me that like um it's kind of one of my big problems with kind of social de democratic politics is that like um it, it's kind of imagined that capitalism is only capitalism at its most vicious like when it's when it's turned up to the maximum and then if you turn the dial down to be less vicious then it's it's a kind of socialism right like and when when the state does something less vicious than maximal capitalism it's actually doing socialism and this is this is the classic trap that so many have fallen into where you know it's 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 like kind of making a caricature of ourselves of, of what the right say about us that like oh the socialists just love it when the state does things and that's kind of actually true for many many like you know social democrats or whatever it's just like if the state is doing something less um horrendous than it could possibly do then it counts as kind of socialistic somehow and but i think that that's a very narrow view of like what capitalism is and i think if you take a more expansive view of like and it, i think a historically justified view of like you know bourgeois capital developmentalism like i mean the tennessee valley authority basically is also a kind of an example of this where the bourgeois state and capital are perfectly capable of like using a variety of strategies depending on 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 the the conditions at the time where they're willing to like fatten the calf for a while so they can kill it later you know and also like the history of the internet fits that paradigm perfectly as well like it's less surprising when you see it as like bourgeois developmentalism and that like they fattened the calf for a while and then killed it or whatever you know that's they're they're able to defer gratification for a little while and so I, I'm, I'm very cautious about taking too much inspiration from these examples from the previous century where the state seems to do something vaguely socialisty by just fattening the calf for a little while. Yeah, it's that, that classic thing of like developmentalism, like promoting capitalist ends by way of socialistic means. Um, so like, 
yeah, with the TVA and creating these power co-ops, like the aim is to electrify these areas so as to promote capital accumulation in the areas. It's not to bring socialism to the areas. Um, it was just that this socialistic measure was the most expedient way to get around the obstructionism of the big bourgeoisie. Yeah. And there's a huge strategic trap that we could fall into where we just decide to kind of do the same thing again, basically, of like, well, let's let's just do, let, let's, let's kind of play that role for a decade or two of like fattening the calf on capital's behalf, you know, and then... You know, it's like if if you if you want had to know like if you if you set up those conditions again, what's to say that like the next government isn't going to just kind of fucking slaughter you again, right? Or sell off whatever you've built. You kind of need to, you need there to not be a state that could do that. You know, there needs to not be a state. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It needs to be like progressing towards its own irrelevance. Is is really the 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 the. The framework you need to work into, uh, you need to work in so that um, it's not all hinging on having a sympathetic state there to advance the aim, like advance popular aims. Yeah, absolutely. Because once once they fatten that calf up, you're going to get fucking uh, done in like uh, afterwards. You know, it's it's. Uh... There's a distinct TikTok cadence to these things, and it's 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 all quite. If again, if if capital is pulling the strings, and it's not the proletariat that are pulling the strings, really, then and the existence of a state strongly suggests it's still capital, it's still a class society, it's still class dictatorship for capital that's doing it. Then, yeah, I don't know. It it all falls out of that, and I guess if we realize that, then that has to feed back into our strategizing. Like, what's the strategy here? And I think like petitioning the state in this Lasallian way to do do socialism for a while on our behalf is is it's just kind of not really i can see why it's appealing because it's a kind of it's a shorter route and it seems more tractable it seems more tractable than challenging the state but like i i don't think it's actually realistically going to work yeah I, I mean i think that like you know using state resources to invest in setting these networks up is fine and good you know if you have access to state power then fine go ahead and use it um like obviously the the resource distribution between the rich and poor is so extreme that like using state power to redistribute some of that wealth uh is a viable way to um like get things going but like you don't want to create dependence. Um, that's the that's the main point. And and I guess it's worth saying as well. Like the 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 book does oscillate on this a little. Like where um, like I mean, chapter chapter four is titled "From Below," right? Like, and there is a substantial chunk of the book that's about this, like building power from below and stuff. But it it, it is also there alongside of stuff that seems a lot more statist. And I, I don't know if it's just for a lack, maybe it needed a bit more editing or a bit more clarity in those regards. But like, I, I, I don't necessarily get the impression that um, it's settled one way or the other entirely in the book. Cause like, exactly. It's, it's, it's definitely not all way or one way or the other. This isn't like um, uh, a sort of purely, uh, you know, left liberal uh, state industrial policy focused sort of argument. 
Uh, Absolutely not. Um, yeah. Uh, um, chapter four being from below um, is kind of about this, like it's going to need a movement and uh, moving from below. And in order for that to happen, there's going to need to be a lot of conversations and a lot of talking and a lot of convincing people. Um, and the framing for the chapter, I guess, is like, in those conversations, there are three broad concerns that tend to be raised. The concern of, um, like, if you're gonna, if you're gonna democratize and decommodify this stuff, like, there are three concerns that come up. Um, the first one being cost, in the, the, and the response is like, fuck it, this, this stuff is already super expensive. Like, uh, we pay a shit ton in subsidies to these fucking companies, so whatever. Um, second concern being anti-competitiveness, um, that like, oh, wouldn't that be an be wouldn't that be you know an anti-competitive move? And the answer is fuck competition, just like screw it, um, competition sucks. Well, yeah, and he also makes the the quite quite a good point that like competition in these spaces, not so much in the case of the the pipes or like provision of of, of internet access, but in in the case of like stuff that's higher up the stack. Uh, is like probably going to promote worse outcomes rather than better ones uh, because people are like if if say if you broke Facebook up into smaller Facebooks um, or like like I don't know like let's say you spun off Instagram and WhatsApp and whatever the fuck else Facebook owns or Meta owns uh, and um, then they would be competing in each other and they would probably behave even worse yeah, they'd be even more than vicious. when they're in a monopolistic position yeah. or a oligopolistic position where they can sort of like rely on their fat profits to um, uh, stave off like uh, investor pressure. Um, so like it's it's like maybe it's anti-competitive, but like actually more competition could be even worse mm -hmm. than what we have in some ways yeah um that is a really good point right like it, that um more competition just gets you into a kind of red queen game where everything everybody's viciously trying to fucking fuck over everyone else um and that could be quite a bit worse for the users the third concern then is um for surveillance that like wouldn't you know um i guess like state-owned infrastructure be um vulnerable to surveillance and it's it the, the argument is basically that it's kind of orthogonal, right? That, like, we already have substantial, like, state surveillance through the internet. Yeah, I mean, it's so extensive. Like, how could it, how could it possibly be more? <laughs> like, with, with PRISM existing, like, like, there's no way it could be more invasive. Yeah, exactly right. So the, 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 the two axes of, like, public-private and, um, you know, privacy versus surveillance don't, don't seem to be related, actually. Um, and we've already, we've already got a really bad situation. Yeah. Cause like, it's not to say that the private firms have no interest in protecting user privacy against the state, but it's just like, they don't really have much in the way of tools to do so. Like, you know, it's kind of like, I guess it was like what for an, a while, like Apple was trying to build sort of like encryption stuff into their phones and that. And the government was like, we don't like the look of that. Um, and, you know, it's just whenever there's pushback against the NSA or whatever, it's like pretty flimsy. Uh, does it doesn't really stick? Well, I, I kind of wonder that, like, um, you know, Apple and Google or whatever, or all these kind of companies, especially the hardware ones, are kind of like um, 
you know, they, they, they pioneer like, you know, full disk encryption and stuff on their, their phones and like security and stuff to, to secure their own operations against the NSA. <laughs> you know what I mean? That <laughs> like, it's, it's, it's more, it's more of like a corporate information security sort of measure. And it just happens to be something that's available to the public, um, more so than. Yeah. And, and, and it can be a selling point too in the market. Right. Um, like I know, I know that like Apple's update policies on their phones and their encryption policies are like a selling point for quite a few people in terms of like security if they're doing like work sensitive stuff on their phones yeah. um, or, or like um you know blackberry right like and it's a, a, a part of its initial takeoff was that um you know executives could use the messaging service and it was like secure and it was encrypted and stuff so that they could do insider trading easily yeah against industrial espionage yeah, they have a certain concern for privacy, but it's not necessarily your privacy as an end user. That's uh, they, they do they do want to pioneer this kind of security technology, but like kind of for their own good uh, more so than anything else. Thank you for listening to General Insight Unit. While you wait for the next episode, you can find us on Twitter at GIUnitPod, you can find us on the web at GeneralInsightUnit.net, and you can find us on all the podcast apps, so like, rate, and subscribe. If you go to patreon.com slash GeneralInsightUnit and give us a couple of bucks a month, you can help to support the show and get access to our community discord. This show is part of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast network and research collective. Go to emancipation.network and check out our sister shows such as From Alpha to Omega, Swampside Chats, Jumpsuit Utopia, and Mortal Science. They're excellent shows and excellent folks. Again, thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time.